Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fuller Church. Glad you're here. Thank you, sir. Uh, nice to have you all here with us this Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors here on staff. If uh, I haven't met you yet, love to meet you after church. And um, hey, uh, before we jump in uh, to our passage in the Song of Solomon, uh, looking at chapter 3, um, I just uh, I wanted to just make a few comments share a few comments about the Supreme Court's ruling this past week um, before we dive into actually a very relevant uh, passage as we look at um, the series on, on marriage and sex. And uh, Pastor Chris will be back uh, in, a, in a little bit, and he'll, he'll want to share a few things about this as well. But I just want to address a few things. And um, as, as a lot of you know, um, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling that essentially redefines how government and how culture views and defines marriage. And um, this, is, this is something that's important to talk about, something that's important for us to understand as Christians. And so look, I, I don't want to be political, and I, my hope is not to make any of, of you upset at all. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that we're in this series on the Song of Solomon right now. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's something where, oh, we just happen to be right in the middle of this, this book that has to do with love and marriage and sex and intimacy. Um, I, I, you know, I think that what it says to me is that this book uh, was included in the Bible, this ancient, uh, this ancient Bible, all these years ago. And what that says to me is that, man, thousands of years ago, people were still trying to figure out how to do this marriage thing in a way that would honor God. I can just imagine people just sitting around writing this down and trying to figure it out a little bit. So here's what I want to do this morning before we jump into my sermon, is I want us to think as the church on the other side of this historic event, this this law has been passed down, and and I want to just say three things to you guys. I want to encourage you with three things. First of all is this, I think it is time for us as the church, and, and maybe you've already started to do this, and especially during this sermon series, to lean in and to listen and to really start to begin to articulate how you define marriage. And look at what the Bible has to say about, about marriage and how that, and if you've never thought about that before, I would encourage you as a church of Jesus Christ to not allow the news, not allow social media, not allow your friends to have that definition be in front of you and have that be the thing that, you, that influences you. And so we look at scripture, we look at the Song of Solomon, we look at other verses, and we look at what, what does God say about marriage? And we see that it's clearly between a man and a, a woman. And so I, I want us to first of all start there. Secondly, though, it's important that no matter kind of how we handle this deal, it's, I want to encourage you to keep the gospel central. That's secondly. And I want, I want to read something to you guys from Titus uh, chapter 3. And it's, this, is a, this is a book that, that Paul wrote to this young pastor named Titus. And it's so relevant for this time we're living in because Titus is, is doing this church plant in the middle of, of an area that just does not uh, know and love Jesus. The, the culture is all messed up. And this is what he says to Titus. And he says this to this young church planner um, about this church that he has. I think this is a, a good word for us as well. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our goodness, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And I think as I read that, a couple things jump out to me. Um, we will have opportunities in the coming days and weeks, and some of you already have, to engage in conversations with friends and family. And I want to encourage us as a church to take those opportunities and to be kind and to be gentle and to be winsome and to think of ways to make Jesus look good in our conversations. I want us to, to remember that the gospel is central to this issue. It's not about behavior. It's not about this, this law. It's, it's, man, do they know Jesus? That should be our only concern. That is the thing I really want us to remember that we, we will win people over not because of our stance on any specific issue, which it's important that we stand up and, and have a voice, but because of that we pray that they would come to know Christ. Because, yeah, there's the institutionalization of sin grieve a Christian's heart? Yes, it does. Do we believe as a church that, that marriage is between one man and one woman? Yes, we do. But the important question is, is do they know Christ? And it's important that we keep the gospel central in this. The, the last thing I just want to encourage us with is, man, these are difficult times to wade through. Um, I, I realize that. I have, I have three kids of my own, and I started thinking about, wow, like, my kids are going to grow up in an environment. And, you know, even at a Christian school, they maybe looked down upon as, as backwards or kind of just, you know, incorrect in their thinking as they get older because of the ways that we'll teach them in our own home. And so we all need wisdom. Amen? Yeah. Right? We, we need wisdom. We need God to provide us wisdom. And according to James, we have this unlimited supply of wisdom available to us. All we have to do is ask God. And so that's what I want to do, just with a few more minutes that we have, as we, as we take some time and pray. I, I hear God calling the church in times like this to be a city on a hill, and not concerned about winning an argument, but concerned about asking God for wisdom and asking God that you know, find ways that we can shine brightly in times like this. And so I, I want to pray, um, and I, would you join me in that as we, as we do that? Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for uh, this, this opportunity we have to talk about um, some, some pretty serious stuff, God. And um, Lord, I, I think about all that we know and all that we don't know, Lord, and, and man, it just it comes up short. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning for wisdom. Um, as, as parents, as married people, as single people, uh, as teachers, as professionals, as business people, Lord, we need wisdom so badly. And so we, we sit here today, God, and ask for your wisdom. Uh, we ask for wisdom and how to respond lovingly to the people around us. Uh, Lord, we ask for wisdom as we engage on, uh, in conversations, whether it's in person or in social media. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom in the words that we use and in the, in the, the characters that we type out on our phones, that we would be wise people. Secondly, God, I pray that your son, Jesus, would be glorified, even through times like this that the centrality of the gospel would be so important to us that as we look out at a world who is lost, that we would remember that we were once lost and that you found us and you saved us because of your grace, not by, by our own works, but because of your grace. And so I pray that we would remember that 
that we would pray for the people around us and we would find ways to glorify you in all that we do. God, we love you. We thank you for this church. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. We are in part 8 of our series in the Song of Solomon, and hopefully you guys are enjoying this so far. I think we're about halfway done. Um, so if you're not enjoying it, we're halfway done. So um, but I am. I'm, I'm so excited to be up here and, and, and sharing from this chapter uh, this, this weekend. And we are here, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, and this is it. They've met, this couple has courted, they've dated, there's attraction, and this, it's all leading up to this moment that we see here in chapter 3, where uh, this is the wedding weekend. This is the wedding weekend, and man, it's interesting, you start to, get to see these snapshots of what this wedding was like for Solomon and his bride, and I you know, couldn't help but think back to my own wedding, and just uh, uh, July 17th, 2004, and uh, just thinking about that day and how, you know, the, the fun parts of it and all the, all the aspects that were kind of busy but still kind of exciting at the same time. And uh, my wife Katie and I, we met actually when we were 16 years old. And um, next month we celebrate our 11th wedding anniversary. So been together for about uh, 17 years total, 11 months, 11 years married. And since then we've moved uh, five times. We've had nine cars. Uh, we've had three dogs. We've had three kids, which we're keeping, uh, Owen, Penny, and Margot. Um, and we've probably played about 140 games of Settlers of, of Catan. So uh, that, this kind of married life, right? But it all started on wedding weekend. It all started on this weekend where both, both my wife and I said, I do, we will, we're in. And uh, as we're kind of walking through this passage, I would encourage you to start to look at and think back at your own wedding. If you're, if you're married, think back at that wedding day. And if you're not married, just think back to the last wedding you were, you were at or a part of. And there's all those great things about a wedding that just makes it special. That moment when the, when, when the, the groom and the bride see each other for the first time. Um, I was a part of a, I was, I was doing a wedding, officiating a wedding uh, last year. And there's this new thing that wasn't around when I was when I got married, but where they, the bride and groom will like not see each other, but they'll hold hands behind a door and pray for each other. It's awesome. It's so cool. Like all these kind of cool things that are a part of the wedding weekend, the cake and all your friends and your family coming around and being a part of the festivities. And this is a good day for us who are married to look back on our vows and, and to think back on, on those vows that you spoke once upon a time. And so uh, as I look at this passage, though, there's one kind of big big idea that pops out, and I want to just share that with you right off the bat, and that's this. A great wedding, a great wedding should be a celebration of our spouses and give us a glimpse of when Jesus comes back for his bride, the church. That is what a great wedding represents, and that's what we're going to see here in the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So right off the bat, here is the man, here is the the bridegroom arriving to come and pick up his bride. And he is covered in cologne and he's, according to scripture, he smells pretty good. So he's ready to go, right? He's ready to be at this ceremony, this important wedding ceremony. Uh, Verse seven, behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Okay, let's stop here real quick. Uh, What is this about? Like, does scripture reveal to us that Solomon just like rolls with this entourage of cats? Like, what is going on here? Uh, What is a litter? 
right? So, so a litter is, is actually interesting. A litter is actually this custom piece of furniture that Solomon has made for his bride. And so maybe you've seen this in movies or I don't know, pictures of this before where there's like this couch and all these guys have poles and they're kind of like parading this person around town. And this is what we see here in verse seven. It's actually this, this uh, celebratory couch, this thing that she's sitting on just to say, hey, this is about you. This is your day and we're excited to celebrate for you. Reading on, around it, this litter, are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. Verse 9, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with a crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding on the day of the gladness of his heart. So this is his wedding day. And this is exciting. This is, this is just an awesome kind of, like, it all builds up to this point. And as I think about your wedding day, my wedding day, um, your wedding day is the second most important day of your life. It's the second most, because the first most important day is the day where you decide, what am I gonna do with Jesus? Well, where do I stand with Jesus? And the second most important day is this decision you make. It's like, hey, who am I going to stand with the rest of my life? Who's going to be my partner through marriage? So it's important, first of all, that we remember that, that distinction, that order. But secondly, what they have in common is this covenant love. You see, my relationship with my wife, Katie, is based on a covenant love that mirrors a covenant love that I have with Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but this is what we see here in this passage. So as we look at this passage, I want to I wanna see what we can learn from this couple. And I have, uh, I have three, three points. If you guys are note takers, three points that I want us to look at together. And then I want to end with a question. Okay, that's where we're headed. Three points and a question. Uh, looking at what we can learn from this Christ-centered great wedding. So uh, right off the top, behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. These guys who are... are armed and ready to go for this big event. So number one, a great wedding, not a good wedding, but a great wedding provides a promise of protection. That's the first thing for you guys to see here in this passage. We see this recurring idea in this book that it is the, the husband's calling, the husband's job, my, my job as a man and as a husband to protect my wife, to protect my wife. Now look, it's not because the, the woman is incapable. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. It's not because she can't take care of herself, but this is a calling on my life as a man and husband to be able to do that. It's my joy to find ways to protect my wife. Now, Solomon was very specific about this. Solomon, first of all, who is Solomon? He's a king, right? He's the head of state. And so like any other head of state, he's thinking about, look, there may be enemies that want to try and mess up this day for me. And so I have to surround this thing with all these armed guys. And so just like any other head of state, like a president or a governor or some sort, uh, they, they have the secret service who are clearing a room for him, making sure that this area is secure. So this is what Solomon does. This is how he starts off this, this marriage saying, look, I'm going to keep you safe. Now, for us today, men, how do we do this? How do we keep our, our wives safe? Um, practically speaking, how does this actually work? Well, 
Uh, look, we're talking about really simple things. Like, man, my wife drives a safe car, right? She's not getting the, you know, the crappy jalopy that we have in the garage, and she has to take that to work and back. But she gets the safe car. She gets the good one, right? The good car. Uh, living in a place that's well lit, that you can take a walk around if you want to, or it's just not dangerous. Um, my wife gets a, we get a, a, she gets a cell phone that works, right? Not where there's an emergency and she has to like put the cell phone up and get the solar panels kind of charged up or take a crank out and crank it up to be able to use it. Like I'm not cheap, right? We're not cheap to give, give our wives bad cell phones. So that she gets a good cell phone. This is medical insurance. This is life insurance. This is simple stuff. But man, if you are the primary worker in your home and you do not have life insurance, I would encourage you to go get life insurance, call someone on Monday and get life insurance. This is one of the most practical ways we can love our spouses by saying, look, if anything were to happen to me, my kids and my wife will be taken care of in my absence. Pretty practical. And this is the guy we see in Solomon. He's thinking about these things. This is where his brain's at. How can I protect my wife? 60 warriors a well-made piece of furniture that's not going to fall apart when she steps on it. A few more things about this, guys. So much that is ingrained in us is that we would be providers, right? So our job as guys, sometimes we think all we have to do is just go to work, make money, come home, and, you know, hey, is there food on the table? Check. You know, is there money for the occasional vacation? Check. Is there money for field trips? All right, good. And that's kind of a little bit of our, our role. And look, I'm not, I'm not dogging that. that is, that's definitely part of what we do. However, it doesn't stop there. We are also called to protect our wives. And sometimes that protection comes in an emotional form. Like, let me give you an example. How many of you as guys, are, are we sitting down with our family, sitting down with our spouse, and together working through our weekly calendar? Looking at, look, hey, you say you want to hang out with your friend on this day, but... You got all this stuff going on. You got a play date this day, and you said you want to volunteer more here, and I just don't think it's going to work this week. And look, I'm not talking about being the Neanderthal, just guy who's like, no, 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 you can't do This is a partnership, but this is, part of this is us having the input and saying, look, I will protect you. I will protect our family from a busy schedule even. Another way to look at this is, guys, are you empathetic to her experience? Let me tell you a story real quick. Um, last week, we, so we have sparklets water delivered to our house. Uh, I know we're re- really fancy. Um, but we, we have sparklets water come to our house. And um, just last week, I was, I was walking out of the house, and I noticed that this water dispenser had, like, very little of no water left in, in you know, these five-gallon jugs, right? And so to be honest, in, in my sinfulness, I walk away, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm in a rush, if Katie hasn't done it, by the time I get home, absolutely, I'll do it. I'll be on it. And so I, I keep walking. And I take a few more steps, and I start to think about her day a little bit. And I'm like, okay, so what's it going to entail for her to knock this out? She's capable. She can do it. She's strong enough. It's fine. But am I really protecting her by just walking away from the situation the way it is? I, I'm thinking about, she's, we have three kids. She's got to find something for these kiddos to do for, for a few minutes and go out to the garage and get this heavy bottle of water and step over toys and, and put this thing on there without dropping all the water out. It's like, is this really good to like leave my wife to do this? No. And so I'm like, idiot, go and you know, help your wife. And so I, I went in there and, 
you know, I was ashamed about it, but I, I, I went and did it. And guys, I'm not saying this to brag. It's just like, how, but how often do we think empathetically about our wife's day, our ex- experience that she's going to have that day? I would encourage you. I think that's part of protecting your marriage. Uh, ladies, let me talk to you for a minute. Those of you who are not married yet, I would encourage you to find a man like, like that. Find a man who is willing to serve you. Find a man who is willing to protect you in that way. And so you can have your list, right? It can be, you know, doctor or whatever, and, you know, tall, dark, and handsome, or for my wife, like short and pudgy and Asian. Like, that's fine. You can have your list. That's cool. But at the top of that list, right underneath, like, he loves Jesus, should be, he serves me. He's a servant. That's part of his identity. That's part of what he does. That's, that's what he's about as a Christian is, is he's a servant. It's so important. I, I, I guarantee, man, if, if you find a person who serves, men and women, if you find people who serve each other, your marriage is just gonna go that much easier because both of you are looking for ways to serve the other. So, this protection is also reflected in Solomon's wedding. So we got the 60 armed guards, a piece of furniture that's not going to just break down when you lift it up. And this is also reflected in our own wedding experience, right? Like, so think back to your own wedding again. Let me ask you a question. Who, who did you allow, as far as these men and women, to plan your bachelor and bachelorette parties? Right? Like, is that, is that a way to protect your, your relationship and your marriage from the start? Um, an, an author, Tommy Nelson, he writes this. It's, uh, he kind of talks about this a little bit. Part of the safety and security of the wedding ceremony will be evident in the people who serve you as your best man, maid or matron of honor, groomsmen and bridesmaids. Choose godly people who will support you fully in the vows you make. As a whole, those who witness your marriage should be like a holy hedge of protection around you, keeping you focused towards each other inside the circle of matrimony and keeping out anyone who might try and destroy your marriage. Don't ask anyone, someone to stand up for you who isn't completely committed to you, to your marriage, and in general to the sanctity and value of marriage. Such a person will not encourage you to work through problems in your marriage. Such a person will not do the utmost to help you and your spouse when they need help, and they may embarrass you at the rehearsal dinner. Words of wisdom. And if you are planning for a wedding, and if you are looking for ways to save money, maybe that's the way to save money, because those people aren't invited anymore. Right? Have, have we thought about that? Have we thought about who are we allowing in to this experience? Are they there to edify us? Are they there to encourage us? And look, this isn't just about people who are about to get married. This, this involves married people, too. So let me ask you, are, uh, who, who are your friends? Married people, who, who do you vacation with? Who do you allow to speak into your life? Are they people that love you and care for you and have your best interest in mind? Or are they people who at the end of the day are just immature people? It's important that we think about these things. The second thing we see in verses 9 and 10. Go back to Song of Solomon chapter 3. Verse 9, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with a love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So number two, a great wedding centers on a pledge of love. That's the second thing we see here. I mentioned this word earlier, and I want us to really think about this word for a minute. And the word's covenant. Covenant. So actually, would you just say that with me just right now? Uh, covenant. One more time. Covenants. So covenant love. What is covenant love? 
What does that mean? Why is it different from just regular love? Well, what makes marriage different than any other transaction, any other business transaction or contract or pinky promise that we learned when we were your kids, what makes marriage different is that it is based on covenant love. Well, what does that mean? Well, covenant love at its heart means that, that it can never be, be broken. Covenant love means it can't ever end. Even if one party fails to uphold their end of the bargain, unlike a contract, a marriage covenant is different. And this is the type of love that we are called to in our marriages, a covenant love, a, a love that will never end, a, a love that will never be uh, you know, deterred by, by sin or by mistakes, but just keeps moving forward. And I believe that so many people who are in relationships today have, have trouble because they don't see their marriage this way. They see it as a contract. How many of you guys have ever signed a contract before? Just go ahead and raise your hands. Sign your name, write a contract of some sort. Maybe it's a lease. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, you're renting a house or a car or something. And I don't know about you. Like, there's always this twinge of like, this feels strange, like signing this a little bit, right? There's just always like a little bit of a hesitation because you're like, well, what if something doesn't work out? Or what if I'm buying a lemon? Or, you know, what what if this doesn't work? And there's this hesitation for so many people, and we see this in pop culture and movies, that are, are nervous about making the plunge, about jumping into marriage, and it's because they see marriage as this contract. Well, what if, what, if, what if he steals all my money and just takes me for everything? What if she cheats on me? And there's this sense of mistrust, and that's a contractual type of marriage, but a marriage covenant is different. A marriage covenant says, man, it's not so much a declaration of present love and commitment, It's a declaration of future love, saying, I'm here, I'm committed to this process for the rest of my life. So verse 9 and 10, when we read Solomon here, how is he pledging his love? Well, in verse 9 and 10, we see that Solomon makes this carriage, this carriage that he he builds for this wedding ceremony from the wood of Lebanon, silver posts, inlaid gold, uh, purple fabric. This is a amazing, ornate carriage. Like, this is a carriage that says, look, I am pledging all my resources, all my time, all my money into this one carriage. Like, I'm not planning on doing this again. I'm not planning on making another carriage like this in the future for other weddings. I'm going all out. It says wood from Lebanon. Well, okay, the cedars of Lebanon, it's kind of some imagery that we see in scripture quite often, and it's this is expensive, expensive wood. Have you guys seen a map lately of like the Middle East, right? Like Lebanon is in the Middle East and there's not a lot of forests, right? In the Middle East, it's desert. And so we have these little, these areas of forest. I was looking this up online this week. Uh, the forests of Lebanon today are still these protected preserves that are so important to the country because th- they could just be decimated by people because there's just not a lot of wood around there. And Solomon uses the, the cedars of Lebanon to just deck out this whole carriage. And, and my point here is that Solomon is not on the fence with this girl. He's not saying, okay, do I kind of want to be a part of this relationship or am I not sure? And so we see Solomon's love is pledged here. And he's saying, look, I will hold nothing back from you. Uh, I, I am completely yours, emotionally, physically, spiritually, Everything I have is yours. There is no prenup involved. 
I am yours. And this is this pledge of love. And so when it comes to a covenant love in marriage for us, what does that look like? Well, I, I want to answer that question, but I also want to answer the question, what does a covenant love look like for our relationship with Christ? And I think they kind of mirror each other. So uh, let, me, let me show you something. Marriage, in marriage, covenant love is reflected through how we come through on the small promises that we make, Right? So small promises, I will take out the trash. I told you I'd do it, I'll do it. Uh, I will be home when I told you I would because you're making dinner and I realized we had some plans tonight. So these are small promises. On the other end, covenant love is shown in our relationship with Christ. By, in Philippians 4, it says, I will supply your needs. In James 1.5, he says, I will give you wisdom when you call upon it. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I will help you overcome your temptation with sin. So small promises, we see covenant love and how they're mirrored. The large promises in marriage, right? This is our, our wedding vows. This is, look, I will stay faithful to you and only you. I will stick around and take care of you when you're sick and old and maybe you don't look so good anymore. I'll, I'll be around. I'll be here for you. Big promises that Christ offers us are, are much more impactful. John 3.16, you guys know, he, he offers us eternal life. In Ezekiel, he says, I will replace your heart of stone and give you new heart, give you new desires. He promises to one day come back for us, his church. So this is covenant love. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I find that oftentimes the small promises they validate the large promises. Like I'm more trustworthy as a, as a husband, as a man, when I come through on the small stuff, it's like, okay, I can trust you with the bigger stuff. And you know, when I used to go to weddings, and I, I remember this when I was younger, um, think back to the last wedding you guys were a part of, uh, I'd be sitting there at the ceremony and I'd be like, this is boring, right? Like, just get through it already. I'm here for the food, so let's get to the reception. Uh, and as I start to read this and start to realize what a wedding is, the next time you're at a wedding, I would encourage you to really lean in and listen to those vows. When, when the, that young couple, when they kind of stammer through their vows and sometimes don't get it right, or it's kind of this funny, cute moment, but really listen to what they're saying because in, in the vows of the wedding, you're, we're seeing, we're bearing witness to the ultimate life example of what Christ offers us in the same way. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is why a wedding is so um, amazing. Another thing, though, is that our, our wedding should, should really be the low point for our love, covenant, our covenant love. Uh, Jeff mentioned this last week, but the day of your wedding, you, the maturity level of your love should be at its worst. Right? I mean, it should be the most pimple-faced, immature love that we have. And it just grows from that point on. And this is covenant love. This is this pledge of love that Solomon offers his bride. Finally, number three. Number three in verse 11. A great wedding has the approval of others. A great wedding has the approval of others. Verse 11 says this. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with a crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So this is this royal wedding. And uh, maybe think back to some news you saw about right, the, the royal wedding in England and how people would line up outside the palace for days just to get a glimpse of, of this new royal couple. 
And this is kind of similar to what we see in this passage. People are excited. They're closing up businesses. They're going and traveling in groups to get the, the, the group rate of the hotel. They're all excited about this event. And we have an interesting detail here in this passage. And we see this anticipation also in King Solomon's mother. King Solomon's mother, who apparently um, part of the ceremony was to lay this like wreath, this crown on her son's head by saying, look, I, I approve. This is great. I love what's happening here today. And who is King Solomon's mother? Who is that? That's Bathsheba, right? I, Bathsheba is Solomon's mom. Now, who's Bathsheba? You don't have to turn there, but 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, is introduced to this story. And as some of you know the story, Solomon's mother did not have this joyous wedding experience. In fact, her story is, is quite scandalous. And we have a, a King David who sees Bathsheba naked bathing on the roof, uh, calls uh, Bathsheba to his palace, uh, she gets pregnant, and so David kills Uriah, her husband, in this scandalous thing, and, and to cover up her, his sin. She mourns her husband Uriah, and David takes her as his wife. And nowhere in Scripture is there anything about a wedding celebration. In fact, this is one of the saddest and most sobering stories in Scripture. And you can almost imagine, uh, Bathsheba is now a mom. And she's here at this wedding ceremony and this story, her own experience is kind of playing on a loop in the back of her head and she sees her son and her, his, her new daughter-in-law and she just can't help but be excited for what the future holds for them. And there's this sense of approval and excitement for this wedding. And we see the young women, the daughters of Jerusalem join in. They're ooing and aahing over the dress and the flowers. And there's this sense of approval in the community. So what can we learn from this? Well, in our own relationships, whether it's marriage or maybe even friendships even, what, what, what can we learn from this? Well, hey, is there a sense of approval when it comes to your relationship? And hear me, I'm not saying go out and seek approval. That's different. That's needy, right? I'm talking about, hey, is that approval already there? Is it just naturally, your relationships, one of those relationships that's like, man, that, those people are solid. Those people are great. They, they, they really try to be thoughtful about this. And so if, there, if there's not, and you have some people in your life who are like, have some real questions, maybe it's time for you to step back and say, hey, well, what is it about us or what we're doing here that isn't, isn't right? And on the other hand, if you look yourself over and you're like, look, we're doing okay, we're following the Lord, we're, our kids are following the Lord, and maybe it goes back to who have you surrounded yourself with? Who are those people in your life right now that are speaking into your life, who you're allowing them to have a pedestal to speak into? So regardless, the fruit of a good marriage is that there'd be some approval, there'd be some kind of, of respect. And, you know, as I look at our church, um, man, as a, as a young married guy myself, I'm so blessed and excited that we have so many couples, a few years ahead of us, a lot of years ahead of us that I can look to and say, man, I, I want to do it like, like them. They're, they're, they're doing it well, and I respect their, their marriage. So those are the three points. I mentioned I have a question at the end. This is my question. Uh, how is Christ and the gospel reflected through a great wedding? How is, has Christ reflected through this? Well, I'd say in two ways. First of all, the gospel it gives us purpose 
in our marriages. The gospel should offer us a goal in mind so that way when we say I do, it doesn't just end there. It says, look, the rest of our life together, man and woman, is to be looking towards uh, the day where one day we will meet Christ. Um, a, a friend of mine, uh, his name is Josh, he shared a story with me. And uh, he was about to propose to his, uh, his girlfriend. And so he thought it was good and right and to go talk to her dad, which is a good idea. And so he, he does this. He talks to her dad and he sits down at a restaurant, lays out all these reasons why they're ready to get married, all these reasons why he can provide for, uh, for, for him and, and, and his daughter. And so he finishes up his, his story, and uh, he's like, kind of like, well, you know, what do you say, sir? Like, can I have your blessing? And so my buddy says, his future father-in-law said this. He says, Josh, my daughter has been entrusted to me by God to, uh, to, to be my, my, my kiddo, to be the, the, the girl that is, I'm going to take care of and protect and part of my role as daddy is to love and to care for her and to take her by the hand and lead her towards Jesus. And so, Josh, when you ask for my blessing, what you're asking for is you're, what you're saying is that you're prepared to take over my job to be the one to love and care and protect her and take her by the hand and lead her to Jesus until the day that she, she, she dies. And my buddy Josh is like, whoa, that's kind of a lot, right? Like, couldn't just get a simple, like, hey, you have my blessing, but no. Uh, and this is, this is the truth, right? This is exactly what marriage is about. This is us holding hands, walking through life, saying, I will prepare you. I will do my best as husband, as wife, to prepare the other for the day that they will meet Christ one day. That is the gospel purpose that we have in our marriage. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, this is my last point, is that Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6, is not just about King Solomon and his wedding. In fact, um, well, some of you guys know about Solomon and, and the, the lifestyle he lived. It, it, it started off great, but it didn't end well. Solomon was, was, was everywhere, right? Solomon was not the example that we look to in how to do a marriage. So what do we do with that, with this imperfect example? Well, the story is actually about Christ the ultimate bridegroom coming back for his bride, the church. And in Revelation 19, when King Jesus comes back, he comes back with armies, he's wearing a crown, he's, he's ready to, to bring back his bride, the church. And forget just having, you know, 60 armed guards and a litter, he brings back the, all the heavenly armies to accompany them. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor and writer, says this. He says that the church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of the eternal wedding feast and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, yes, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his love, and she shall drink her fill. Yes, she shall swim in the ocean of his love. And so this wedding day, it's, there's some stuff we can learn from it, but ultimately, this is about Jesus. And this is about, this is about us as the church being pressed forward and just looking forward to that day when he comes back for us, his bride. And so Solomon and you and me as, as guys, we'll try our best to be husbands uh, that live up to this call. But the truth is, is that we're gonna fall short. And Jesus, in every single way, 
in every single way I just talked about, he, he outdoes everyone. He promises to protect and keep us safe, and he actually delivers on that promise. He offers us never-ending covenant love, and he, he falls through in that promise. And one day, he's coming back for us, his church. And so I would just say, church, that our job from this moment is to eagerly look forward to that day. As, as a bride would the day that she gets married, that's our job right now is to, to look towards that day with anticipation and say, man, I can't wait until Christ's return. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, thanks so much for this passage. And um, God, man, your, 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 your word is so rich on so many levels, Lord. And as I look at this passage in chapter three of Song of Solomon, um, we're blessed to see from a practical standpoint how we can be better husbands and wives in our marriage. Where I'm, I'm blessed to hear and to read about how you want us to protect our wives, to offer covenant love to our spouses. And yet at the same time, God, you, you're calling us as a church to be ready, to look forward to that day when you will return. God, you are the ultimate, uh, our, our greatest love. You, you fulfill every requirement. You, you, are, you, you check every box on our list, Lord, and, and we cannot wait until you return. And so in the meantime, God, I pray that we would live lives that would be worthy of that calling. That we'd find ways to, to glorify you, to glorify your son, in the meantime, we wouldn't waste these years here on earth. God, uh, I, I pray, um, as, as I started this off, Lord, that we would continue to grow in our faith and our understanding of what marriage is, that we'd be able and ready to articulate how we see what marriage is, how the Bible defines that. God, there are, are so many different voices around us, and I pray that we would be faithful to lean in and listen to your voice. Even now, Lord, God, speak to us. Help us this week. Help us uh, apply these things. And um, God, it's because of, of you and your help that we'll accomplish any of that. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.